welcome to Directly Correct, a Peelings podcast with Colin Scott. Today's guest, Rob Stilson. Thanks to our sponsors, Worklytics. Generate actionable insights from work data while protecting your privacy using workplace analytics with our partners, Worklytics. Going on. That's probably what's going on because I have not gotten a haircut since February of 2020. Oh, wow. Okay. The stock well, photo is different than how I look now. I probably need to change out the headshots because uh, my most recent trip to Boston for PSYOP is like, are you sure this is you? Because I got my driver's license renewed October of 2019. And that's when I had the high tight 3-1. So it's like, I don't I don't think this is you. Now, what's a high tight 3-1? I'm not familiar with this. Reference. Oh, so you know that you're at the height of fashion when you can call <laughs> out the haircut. They've got it saved at Great Clips because it was one millimeter on the side and three on top. And you just walk in, they're like, hey, three, one. I'm like, yeah, that's me. Let's get this done. And I'd be in and out in five minutes because the hair, I usually keep it high and tight because if it gets a little bit long, it just, it goes everywhere and it's not a great look. And then I got to like plaster it down, but now gravity has taken over. So I I can just kind of rock this. Well, Cole and I are both in Texas. I mean, in Texas, like the bigger the hair, the bigger the pathology. That's that's how you know what, <laughs> when crazy is coming at you, right? Yes, uh, I guess this is my own personal rattle for the rattlesnake. Like <laughs> this guy, I don't, I don't know what we're gonna get from him. Well, Rob, I think you had a few things you wanted to talk to us today about. Do you want to talk about any of those right now? Sure. Uh, We can lead this off. And uh, one of the things that's concerned me over the past couple of years is I call it the Mighty Ducks problem. And I'm not sure how many of our viewers are familiar with the movie, The Mighty Ducks, but it came out, I think it was early (laughs) 90s Disney movie, really good. I'm probably losing half the audience here. But one thing that I heard after this, it's we had to figure out, are we going to train actors to play hockey? Or are we going to train hockey players to act? And ultimately, it turned out that it was just better to train actors to play some, you know, believable hockey. But when that comes to I.O. and our our current setting, people analytics, et cetera, my concern is that a lot of the times in the business, they want stuff in production. They want it as quickly as possible, et cetera. The path that I found to that is through various programming languages and things of that like, but I bring the IO psychology background with me. So, okay, how do we think about this from a people perspective? Let's make sure that there's no biases here. How do we make sure this is legally defensible if it's being used for selection, et cetera? My concern is that in this rush to get things in production and have all the fancy data science behind it, they might just bring on data scientists and say, okay, can we give them like a weekend seminar on how to make sure that maybe there's no bias or anything along those lines? So I just, uh, I'm trying to press all of the IOs I know to get into, or at least be familiar with the programming, coming at it at scale, thinking long-term and larger of how we can just stay in this conversation because I'm concerned that we might get passed by if we don't stay current to all that. Well, I mean, uh, in The Mighty Ducks, there there was a character that couldn't stop. 
that was his whole bit. That was his flaw in the movie. Like he actually couldn't stop. So it makes sense that they would actually train an actor and just incorporate it into the movie that they couldn't stop. I, I thought I thought you were gonna say the Mighty Ducks problem was the fact that the flying V formation was like totally illegal. That would never be allowed. That's, right. that's just interference on the highest level. Your your point is apt. Your point is apt. Like uh, all, all you really all you really need is a weekend seminar on adverse impact for a data scientist to actually make a ripple, right? Because it's like, oh yeah, we checked that box. We're good. We're we're good to go. And I just I don't want us to get passed by in that conversation because I've seen a lot of people analytics types roles that don't even know what an IO psychologist is. And that's kind of a branding issue on our part. I haven't cracked that nut yet. I'm working on it. And you know, my elevator speech, Hey, what do you do? I do data science for work. Oh, I get it. As opposed to I'm an industrial organizational psychologist. I lose them right there. So I've just condensed it into data science for work. And then we can kind of progress from there if they want to know more. So which one are we, are we the, are we the actors or are we the hockey players? So I think that we might be, this would be the hockey players that didn't get on the ice and, you know, they're putting those data scientists out there and they're like, yeah, you know, uh, make sure you don't do anything illegal. Okay. Yeah. So parents out there, don't teach your kids to be hockey players. That's, that's what I'm taking away from this. If they want to be in a Disney movie, but I've been watching the playoffs and I'm not going to get misty on y'all, but Atlanta has lost two hockey teams. That that is brutal. So I've adopted my Tampa Bay Lightning from going to grad school down there. And hockey's a great sport, but if you want them in a Disney movie, teach them to act. <laughs> let, let let me introduce you real quick, Rob. Okay. Yes. So, thank you. Well, today's guest, we have Rob Stilson. He's an accomplished people analytics principal analyst working in med tech, as well as he specializes in employee listening, NLP, data viz, data storytelling. He's also a terminal professor at our research institution. He earned his BS in psychology from University of Georgia and his PhD in IO psychology from University of South Florida. And he is the vice president of membership for the Georgia Industrial IO Psychology Group and then runs the Atlanta IO Happy Hour Group. I did want to kick it to Scott because I think you had something for him, Scott. I think you're you're absolutely right, Rob. Like we, we don't have a good marketing arm the way say like economists do to really get our name out and let everyone know what we do. Uh, mm-hmm. It may just be because like uh, there's so many flavors of IO, there's so many different areas that we can play that it's hard to condense it down in just like one area. Yeah, and uh, full disclosure. So I knew I wanted to be a psychologist starting in eighth grade. Didn't know what I wanted wow. to do with it, but that's what I went to you know, undergrad for and started out as a psych major and a French major. And uh, one of those panned out, I'll let y'all guess which one, but (laughs) going through that, it's like, all right, this is cool. This is cool. What am I going to do with this? And it's junior year of college. I'm not great as a therapist and I don't want to give cocaine to rats. What do I do? And fortunately, my faculty mentor is like, Hey, have you taken psychology at the workplace? No, I have not. What is that? So I took that class and then it's boom, it happened. I understood and said, this is what I want to do. So I was able to ride the lightning from that, ended up at a great grad school and have turned that into the work that I do now. But even being in the psychology department, hadn't heard of it. So Mm -hmm. I think we've gotten a little bit better since then. 
but yeah, Pre- I think we got to wait. Even those them. like though the intro books has like a paragraph devoted to IO, yeah. right? And, and most everything else is like Skinner or you know uh, classical conditioning, this sort of thing. Yeah, it um, even within our own group, we're still kind of unknown. So I'm not sure how to get the marketing out there. I personally talk to as many people as I possibly can, you know, knocking on doors. Do you have a minute to talk about IO psychology? Doesn't go well, but I'm trying to do my part. I think that one way to do it is to kind of like bridge these different gaps. So uh, for one time, you you talk about like uh, selection and then the application of like data science, like natural language processing and how those two can be joined together. And I know you're a massive proponent of these sort of things. Like how can like IOs use this uh, to a better degree than we already are? That's an awesome question. And I was part of a PSYOP panel I guess it was like two or three years ago and it was those that were teaching people analytics and you know what do they need to know and i think i was potentially the only one at the time doing natural language processing with my students and it's so important and it's such low-hanging fruit that especially with employee comments or sometimes you'll just have a ginormous uh focus group and they want to see kind of what came out of that and the ability to do that and turn it around quickly with sort of a, a, that bent towards psychology is hugely powerful. That is one of the favorite parts that my students tell me from this class because they're able to turn it around that next day and really put it to work. So I think that we mm-hmm. need to integrate more of that into the, the programs that we're teaching. So what are we talking about, like topic modeling or just basic sentiment analysis or like what, what, what do you have your students doing with this you know, free text data? It's all of the above. So we hit it from a couple of different areas. Sentiment analysis is, of course, in there. We've got stemming versus non-stemming, and that's just where you kind of take the root form of the word. We do, uh, I yeah. always lose people with latent Dirichlet allocation. That's uh, sort of unsupervised topic modeling, but it's more probabilistic. I like regex, and a lot of the psychologists I know have never heard of regular expressions. But with regular expressions, it's basically pattern recognition of text. And you can think of it as, you know, control find on steroids, but you can combine it with ors. You can get it down to, you know, these two words have to occur within three words of each other. Well, so so tell me more about this, Rob, because I guess the argument you're making is that natural language processing needs to be a core element of IOSYCH education or people analytics education more generally. What, what's the opposite side of that argument? Like, have you ever had psychologists that are like, you know, I'm not really that interested in this, or maybe this has never really benefited me. Are there specific roles or career tracks where NLP is necessary upon entry to get into those? So tell me more about this. No, you hit the nail on the head, and I typically fall way down on the I side, and I forget our O counterparts. I think that it needs to be a part of the curriculum to the degree that there's an awareness around it, but if you're going to be, I think, in the employee listening space or adjacent to that, it would be necessary upon entry, but if you're not, I still think there's that awareness there so that it could be leveraged if it would help. Maybe you did some sort of uh, assessment center or executive coaching, and it's just a lot of text and nobody wants to read all of the comments. 
or if it's going to need to be repeated, then they won't have to read them over and over again. So it's a lot of awareness. And some of the students that take my class, it's an elective. They are not going to do this in their daily work, but they now have awareness of it. And then they can reach out to others and say, hey, have we approached the problem from this standpoint? Like what are the what are the limits of like NLP or any sort of like advanced analyses from, from like one perspective like NLP is like orthogonal to a lot of things that we do totally different we're quickly going into a world that we don't really understand mm -hmm. right I think we can all agree on that like is it okay like from an ethical standpoint to record say a job interview and then transcribe that text and then run NLP on it to predict personality characteristics intelligence who knows what great what question of, i mean I don't, I don't know that is it's the wild wild west and attended a lot of good sessions at psyop this is kind of like that passive passive listening aspect of it and one of the things that came out of that is give people the option to opt out so if you're going to use mm -hmm. what they've said typed etc give them the opportunity to opt out of that but yeah, it, it's really, really interesting of all the places that we can go around this. You know, is it what makes it data exhaust? And when when can we use this? How do we make sure to use this in the right way? Let's be transparent around it. One of the aspects brought up is if you would not want this analysis done on your data exhaust or on your emails, et cetera, <laughs> you might want to think twice about it. The golden rule, essentially. Well, and there's the candidate experience part of this as well. You know, in the last 10 years or so, it, you know, the big complaint is people putting their resume and applying for a job online and feeling like a big void or black hole that you never hear back from, or you only get mm -hmm. a rejection yeah. letter. And, but I've heard from, you know, in our entire employer through like some of our candidate experience work that it's actually kind of feeling that way with video interviews. You get, you know, every employer is asking you to do another video interview that takes 30 minutes or an hour of your time, and then you never hear anything back. And so it's it's the new void that exists for, you know, people applying for jobs. And that in itself really bothers me. Yeah, it's it's really interesting what's being done with all of that. And through my most recent job search, I had to do a couple of those. And I don't know the best way to go about it. There's probably some videos of me somewhere with my dog jumping on me in the middle of this <laughs> interview because she's like, what are you doing? This is new. This is fun. It's like, no, get over there. Take two and starting again. But yeah, is, is this all going into this huge warehouse like at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Or where <laughs> where is all this going and what are they learning from us? Rob, you're on point today with some dated references, man. Like we're going hey. Raiders of the Lost Ark, Mighty Ducks. You're talking about Atlanta losing hockey teams like 20 years ago. The <laughs> pandemic screwed up everything. And it's like we hit a time bump and we come out of here and it's like, wow. Yeah, the late 90s got weird. And like, dude, it's 2023. It's like, oh, my. Okay. I think my, but... my hair is so long. <laughs> <laughs> it's like i may look like i just woke up from a coma but no i've been here the whole time it's been weird but yeah i'll, I'll probably you know sprinkle in some references to the beatles and such and they're like when did this take place but yeah yeah i mean i guess you're i take it you're a grunge fan since that was popular in the early 90s like hey. I, I don't know it's just a guess hey. 
That is that is adequate. Yes, my daughters know all about Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Mother Love Bone. We can go way back there, but it's it's just amazing. Um, y'all, this is y'all's fault. I'm blaming you. I'd never listened to podcasts before, and then I kind of caught wind of this, and it's been great listening to it. But looking at other podcasts, there's the history of rock and roll, and I think 500 songs, and it's there's so many episodes. I think they're up to like. 160 something now but just tracing that from the beginning it's brought all this back so you know they started in the 20s and i think that anchored me so oh. any more references in the podcast i'll try and make it a little more current we'll try to work in as many uh 80s references and early 90s references as possible like uh, great we'll, we'll try to try get the goonies in later Definitely. yes great movie <laughs> I, I think it's kind of crazy with you i think you were kind of an early adopter to the work from home type of environment it's surprising me you haven't come across podcasts earlier because i feel like that's very much a work from home activity but i don't know tell us about what that was like being early to that mode of working yeah uh i've been essentially doing this since 2011 with a boutique consulting firm at the time and i don't know why they started that way but it, it allowed them to leverage talent from everywhere. So we were based all over the U.S. I think we only got together maybe, I mean, we always got together at PSYOP, but there was a home office, and I think we only got together in person there one time. And I worked there for about six years, but it was it was nice at the time. And I think I got used to this because with all that flexibility, the video quality wasn't nearly what it is now. So we would often not turn on our video cameras and I could just be off camera. And I kind of got used to that. And now as we progress, especially <laughs> after the pandemic, like, yeah, turn your Zoom camera on. Oh, I don't want to be on camera. It's Oh, so yeah, I'm getting used to it still, but I just tell them if I'm not on camera, just imagine me like this and we'll go from there, you know, just make it your background clearly. Right. right? That's what I should do. But I mean, like you raise a real point, like you, you, I'll call you a wily veteran of the uh, work from home game. Uh, even you, it sounds like you don't like being on camera. Uh, do, do you ever get uh, like this, like uh, meeting fatigue, the Zoom fatigue from everything's a 30 minute block. You, you got to be like on point on front of the camera, all, all this sort of stuff that we everyone kind of experienced during the pandemic. What are your feelings about this? Like how to combat it? My past two workplaces, I think they've done something really good where you would just sort of have an automatic block from let's call it 3.30 to 5 of heads down working time. Nobody schedules meetings then, yes. and you are able to get stuff done. Uh, no meeting Fridays is typically something, or if you are having a Friday meeting, you don't have to be on camera. But just these purposeful blocks of no meetings here, because, yeah, it does wear on you. And I forget the research I came across, but it was like, is it worse to have six 30-minute meetings or three one-hour meetings, even though it's the same amount of time, it seems like those short meetings, it's almost like death by a thousand paper cuts. But yeah, it can it can wear on you. And I just try to block off time. And if you absolutely need me, here's how you reach me. But if I'm just bouncing from here to here to here, I'm not going to be terribly productive that day. 
I think you raise a great point. Like uh, I, I think about Zoom fatigue in the in the moment. Like you, you're having to like deal and like for, for whatever reason, it's like a totally unnatural. And it is. It's an unnatural sort of thing. We probably didn't evolve to be part of. But the meeting blocks themselves, like if you got 30 minutes in between two different meetings, it's hard to get anything done. Like yeah. I'm sure there's research to say that you can't switch tasks that quickly and try to ramp your brain up, this sort of thing. But then again, like having three straight hours of meeting is just brutal in itself, right? Yeah. And it'll overlap lunch, especially if you're working across time zones. Like, oh, oh, yes. Your 2 p.m. is wide open. It's like, that's not my 2 p.m. That's your 2 p.m. <laughs> do, do you think that there are issues that people are going to encounter, such as like less mentoring, less career advancement, just because they don't have that face-to-face time? Or That's a really interesting point. And I'm not sure what that is going to eventually look like. I've heard that people may get promoted less if they're not in some sort of core office. But I've been doing this so long. And during the pandemic, I had to teach on Zoom that I think that I'm used to coaching and giving mentor advice via phone now, but I've been doing this for years. Yeah. You're, you're the really veteran. Interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of, of teaching and I know you, I, I kind of butchered it in the intro, but like you're leading some of these local like networking groups, any like tips and tricks that you have for, you know, either virtually or in person being able to network effectively? I've done a couple of presentations around this and uh, started up my group almost 15 years ago now and now being part of the membership with GuyOp. A lot of times people are are hesitant to network. It's like, I'm not going to know anybody. I don't even know what this is about. So I'll encourage them to reach out to me and, you know, hey, if you don't know anybody there, come find me. And I'll make those connections for you. Or if I know other people of similar interests are coming ahead of time, I'll just kind of get them clued in to, hey, these are the people that I think you would work uh, talking with. For the in-person stuff, this came out of Al Adamson's uh, Pafal meeting in Atlanta. And Rob Cross was actually the, the guest there. But it was the stickers of, you know, four different areas. You know, you get blue if you're people analytics, you get orange if you're de and i and that way just looking at somebody's name tag it's like oh they do people analytics too let me just lead with that so there are different ways of greasing those wheels and facilitating the conversation but there's your go-to's as well one of the things one of the challenges i've seen is don't ask people what they do you know lead with anything else but Mm -hmm. that you can eventually get there but there's some icebreakers and uh, especially this, uh, I learned this when we were doing the Great Recession, instead of asking what somebody does, ask them what keeps them busy because they may be out of work. And with all the tech layoffs <laughs> recently, you might want to lead with, hey, what keeps you busy? And that way, if they want to talk about work, they can. But if they don't want to, if they would just want to talk about a hobby or whatever, then it's a, a soft landing for them to kind of just park right in there. What keeps you busy? Nailed it. Podcast. No, uh, a lot of uh, just moving the daughters to various places. They're at that age where, you know, somebody's got dance, somebody's got swim, let's get people everywhere. And during the pandemic, there was not a lot that you could do. So we were discovering all these various playgrounds where you could still socially distance and 
still be outside and sort of be around other people. So we'll do weekends where we just hit three or four different playgrounds and stuff like that. How's the weather in Atlanta? I'm sorry. I feel like you were giving us a lot of like small talk 101 stuff for now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's finally warmed up for the year. We had kind of a chilly April, a little sprinkly today, but I think we're going to get nice and sunny here, which is uh, so much better for me. My blood thinned out living in Florida. I didn't realize that was going to happen, but now I'm at the point of if it goes below 65 degrees, do I really want to go outside? I, I, I've I've had the exact opposite moving to Seattle, where it's like, oh god, it's over sixty-two. What the hell? It's warm, warm as hell. <laughs> um, Bathing suit um, weather. Yeah, absolutely. And people do. They go out in the freaking lake, and it's like sixty-four degrees. But like Rob, Rob, <laughs> you're pretty techy. I'd, I'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about like your thoughts on ChatGPT, and like, is this a precursor for? great things we're going to merge into a great society or are we off into uh oblivion here oh my goodness i think i'm excited about it i am choosing to be optimistic i also always use please and thank you when i prompt it just because i don't want to end up on a list yeah i do the same thing to alexa yeah Yeah, right exactly oh my gosh it uh and i have to teach it in my class this has been this has been brought up by those of us that teach. How in the world do we handle this? Because, hey, write me a five-page essay on X. Boom, it's done. You can tweak it here. You can tweak it there. You do a little bit of fact-checking, make sure it's good to go. But that just took you, what, 10 minutes? Coding as well. I've adopted it as an R copilot, and I know it does well as a Python copilot as well. A lot of my class is about coding and learning how to code and putting in that sweat equity. So what I think we're going to do this go around is have them do the homework and the projects on their own, but then incorporate chat GPT or whatever generative AI is the flavor of the day at the time and submit that and then submit the final one because I can't not teach them about it. Their competitors are going to know about it. This is happening. How do we embrace this? So, uh, and Cole, I'll throw this back at you. You did the paid version, which I think gets you chat GPT-4. I'm still on 3.5, but have you seen a marked difference between the two? Because I'm I'm thinking about splurging. I mean, it's all right. I don't know how to, like, I don't want to, like, give them, like, free advertising or something like that, since I feel like we've already done that on the pod. But it, it's it's better in some ways. They actually have these little dial bars on there that shows you like where GP, uh, GPT 3.5 is actually better in some ways than four before mm-hmm. is better in other ways. So I'll just kind of defer to open AI in that sense. I do find it's more conversational has been my general kind of like, I feel like mm. GPT 3.5 was more like freshman 101 essay on every mm-hmm. topic or it's more conversational with GPT four. Does it, hallucinate as much and i guess if the listeners are unfamiliar with that sometimes it lies to you and you got to be dang sure you know what's going on in there before you say there's my citation i mean i'm not writing a whole bunch of research papers and so it may have been hallucinating on me but i always um i we mentioned this with alexis at psyop but i always ask it for the references like i'll I'll ask it to do the regular response and then i'll ask it for the references and the second response I find that works pretty well. It may be hallucinating. 
Um, I know Alexis <laughs> actually did this test on her own biography and yeah. it, like invented stuff for her using 3.5. But I mean, my, my thought is I'm not famous enough to do the test. So I can't validate <laughs> if it's hallucinating with GPT-4 on me. Yeah. And I sent y'all what it sent me because I was, you know, I heard that podcast at PSYOP. I was like, oh, I'll be fancy now. I'll put my name in there. And huh, we we don't know who you are. Apparently, uh, you have not made an impact <laughs> on history. I was like, wow, brutal feedback. I needed to hear that. But thank you, ChatGPT. We'll, we'll have to go write our own bio now. Yeah, the two it, best compliments for being Rob or Cole is you're very achievable. <laughs> Or forgettable. Well, either one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do you want to step into the confusion matrix with us? Let's go. Let's go. Okay. Today we're gonna to do uh how do I pick a number? Like this is like totally free form. Your only well, not your only job, but your job right now is to pick a number from one to twenty-eight. That's very specific. Um because we have twenty-eight with... items. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very good. Yes, yes. We'll go with three. Oh, this is a good one. Rob, what is your favorite meme? Okay. And uh, the meme game has been strong recently. There is, um, I've seen a lot of the good ones where I think yes. she's, I don't know, five-year-old girl that's kind of got this evil look over her shoulder as there's like this house burning and uh, there's been a lot of good ones around the workplace involving that one. Oh, yeah, where she's watching the world burn behind her, kind of like yeah. a wry grin. I've kind of got one, like, along similar lines. Um, and this is an oldie but a goodie, is the, the dog that's in the room that's burning around him and says, this is fine, everything's fine. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. That is my favorite. Every time, that, that's it's so applicable to so many things. I like the little like Muppet that's like giving like the side eye, like you like look yeah. sideways and then looks forward. Yeah. Oh, and I don't know if y'all are into dad jokes, but it's I think it's a husky, and it looks like the husky is laughing. So it's kind of you know it's a calm husky, and then it's got this big smile with the eyebrows raised, and yeah. yeah well, your meme game is strong, Rob. Well, we got to continue that meme game, and let's uh, let's do some nerdery. You down for some nerdery, Scott? Yeah, absolutely. What do you want to awesome. start with? I want to start with something that comes up every few years, which is this whole concept of generations and the workforce, and mm. how generations are so different. And it was the millennials were so different not that long ago, and now it's Gen Z is so different. Um, but um, as every few years, it has to be debunked. And so McKinsey published some research called Gen What? Debunking Age-Based age Myths About Worker Preferences. And they go through and they, they go through all the different generations in the workforce and ask them things like why they would quit a job or why they would stay at a job, kind of employee value proposition related things. Mm -hmm. And what they find is it's basically the same stuff across generations. The one key difference that they find, which makes total sense, it's all about life stages, is the only different, like all generations care about compensation. All of them care about their leaders being strong. The one difference is the focus on their career. People who are younger in their career are really focused on having career advancement. But people who are later in their career already had that advancement, and therefore it's lower on their ranking of things. 
but generally speaking, it's pay management, all the good stuff that we always know is consistent across generations with very small differences. And so again, I'll, I'll say it. I've probably said it on the podcast before. I'll say it again. It's life stages, not generations. How did, how did you guys react to, to this article from McKinsey? This is groundbreaking shit, right? I mean, blows your mind. Yeah. Me, I, much as, as much as the next person, I love a good me, yeah, millennial suck article that comes out from like BuzzFeed <laughs> or whatever. Like I, I, I appreciate those just as much as the next guy, but obviously we got to bring some research to the, to bear sometimes. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Rob? Yeah, uh, that resonates for sure. And it also kind of goes to a bigger issue of if you're doing people analytics and you find something that people respond with, duh, well, that's okay, because now we've kind of established that this is actually mm -hmm. going on. But I, I've seen what this research is reflecting. It seems like it's better to go tenure-based as well. So if somebody's been there for one year or less, here's probably what's going to be going on if they've been there for two to three, three to five, et cetera, regardless of how old they are. It's more of that, um, you know, where are they within this organization? And I've been in the exit space, the exit survey space for a while as well. I don't know your company, but I know the top two reasons people are leaving are compensation and they aren't able to advance. We might get into some finer slices as we go down the rabbit hole, but it seems like those are the two main drivers, regardless of the generation that people come from. Yeah, this isn't something that's new to IO at all. It's like focus on your hygiene factors. We are it's it's also really reinforcing. Like we're more similar than we are different as people. Mm -hmm. So like if you take care of things like compensation, take care of things like development, uh, making sure your your boss isn't a jerk, guess what? People are gonna have a good work experience. But to Cole's point, also it's like this this article didn't bring up the juicy stuff we really want to know. Like, are are Gen Z are they really lazy? Are boomers like uh, workaholics? And like, who who has the cell phone in the office that keeps ringing? Why is it making noise? Why can't yeah. we take care of these issues? Yeah, we got to tackle the real problems. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> um, I did I did kind of have a tangent here, is somewhat related to this topic of. I was actually talking to somebody earlier today for in kind of like a mentorship capacity. And they're asking me about data analysis and mm -hmm. like, how would you know, like once you leave graduate school and you're in the working place and people aren't like checking your work, like, how do you know what you're doing is correct? And I said, honestly, in people analytics, most of the time, if you're finding something that is boring and, and, you know, has yeah. been found a hundred times before, you're probably right. And if you're finding something new and interesting, it's probably wrong. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, you're probably doing something wrong if you found this new groundbreaking thing that's never been found before on your engagement survey that's been analyzed a thousand times before. That's a great point. And uh, sort of adjacent to this, one of the things I teach is about the Anscombe's Quartet and Simpson's Paradox and all of these things that can kind of creep into your data and make you think you have something when you don't. Just being aware of it. So yeah, if, uh, if it doesn't pass the sniff test, then be careful of it. If you find something and you're like, yeah, I'm going to be world famous. The next time we have this conversation is going to be from my second yacht. Uh, maybe, you know, kind of <laughs> taper that down and all of these other large companies that are paying huge teams of 100, if they haven't found it, 
you probably didn't just stumble across it. So go ahead and double check your sampling, try to get a second opinion on it. But yeah, any small incremental gains, that's, that's where I do the dance. Well, I mean, you, you bring up something there, Rob, that we haven't touched on. It's like really nerdy stuff, like the Simpsons paradox, which is super cool from people's <laughs> yes. perspective. So it's the it's a general idea that you can have a overall one uh, regression line, but for mm -hmm. some populations that that uh, relationship could be different. And this is the point where you're finding, to Cole's point also, that you're finding like perhaps different relationships than are expected, but it could be organizationally specific or... Uh, just group specific, these sort of things. Yeah, I think one of the famous examples of Simpson's paradox is actually, I think it's, I may be making this up again, this is directionally correct, but I think it's blood pressure and heart disease, where if you actually show the relationship between the two, it shows that as your blood pressure goes up, which is bad, you actually have less heart disease. But it's because the relationship <laughs> for males versus females is orthogonal to the relationship. And so if you mm. graph males versus females, it actually shows the proper relationship um, that as blood pressure goes down, heart disease goes down. But if you graph it just without males versus females, you don't see that relationship. It's a very interesting finding. Yeah. And that brings up something that I hadn't thought of in a while, but it's like survivor bias and also just the missing data. So oh, yeah. in a survey, why is the data missing? And a lot of people will just look at the people that responded. But if you then look at all the people who didn't respond and if they ended up leaving, it's like, oh, yeah, they were just so disengaged that they didn't bother to take the survey. So where are those big pockets? Because you might find a pocket of 10 people that seem like they're, you know, kumbaya, everybody's just, you know, playing the bongos, having a great time. And the other 20 people in that department didn't respond. So it looks like, you know, shiny, happy people holding hands, but it's really just getting ready to have a huge turnover issue and we gloss over it. There you go yeah. with these, these dated references. That is early nineties. That was, that was a great album. <laughs> playing bongos at work where are you working man <laughs> i'm working from home and i'm not on camera so they can't see the bongos i i just do the mic up and i get in a session <laughs> speaking of uh work in some capacity uh this is a kind of like a no uh, another no duh sort of study so uh, orgs are clearly under pressure to deliver. And uh, the idea is that larger teams can deliver more. And this has advantages. Uh, you know, obviously you got more people, more resources, this sort of thing, but it also comes with the coordination costs. And um, uh, managers tend to focus on those process gains, but not the consequences of the larger teams. They call this the scaling fa uh, fallacy. So with team size, uh, managers underestimate the number of hours uh, to complete a project. Uh, so on, on these larger teams, you get more people, they become more specialized. There's conflict issues. There's motivation issues. There's uh, competing priorities. There's miscommunications, all these sort of things, which lead to this primary underestimate of how coordination actually works. Yeah. I'd always heard this. I don't know if it actually comes from scientific studies or something, but like a team of five engineers can sometimes ship a product quicker than a team of 50 engineers with the same task and with higher quality. Yeah. It's not just faster, it's better oftentimes. And so I, I think the concept in economics is, is the point of diminishing returns or the marginal utility. But really that implies that the utility levels off. Really, utility actually decreases 
sometimes when you add more people to the equation. So it's probably more like a inverted U relationship between team size and performance. Yeah, and it's interesting. So I did a stint in the external consulting world, and it was really interesting because I think on our team, we probably had about 40 people, but we were all working on different projects. And it was sort of next person up would be who would get assigned to this team as long as they had the skills. Some of those smaller teams would do better, especially when it came to documentation and just knowing your role and being able to actually push stuff out the door. So sometimes you'd get an additional two, three people on the team. And it's like, okay, wait, who, who is covering this now? I thought that yep. was my job. Let's, let's do another meeting to talk about the meeting to figure out who's delegating for this other meeting. And yeah, more, more cooks in the kitchen doesn't really always work out. Hey, the, that's absolutely right. Like imagine if the Goonies added one more character, that'd just be like one more side <laughs> meeting that they would have to engage in, right? The more people... And, more meetings yeah and one-eyed willie is the treasure <laughs> gets one more slice i had to work really hard to work the goonies back in at some point here that was um, impressive but yeah you get these like I, I, your, your point's absolutely correct like you get these more specialized people that have like dominion over smaller smaller bits of information and then you get this diffusion responsibility too where who's actually covering it then at the end like no one's actually covering the whole and job. If you're adding people that happen to be in different time zones as well, it really cuts oh, down yeah. the times that you can have a meeting. It's like, well, y'all can get me at 8 p.m. I'm not going to be happy about it. Or, yeah, I'll hop on this 7 a.m. meeting so that we can all be there in semi-adjacent working hours. But it, it can really make it difficult. With the project plan, it's like, okay, well, we had it assigned to these five people. Here's how we're going forward. Now that we added these two, what gets split off? And then there's that overhead of trying to figure out yeah. how, how are we revamping the project? Yeah, the thing I always think about in these problems is like middle management. A lot mm -hmm. of middle management, it, the job is meetings. Like there is no productivity <laughs> yeah. outside of meetings. It's just meetings. I, I see that as kind of both an independent variable and dependent variable in this equation, like a cause and an effect is like, if some people, their whole performance is meetings, they're going to want more meetings to happen. But if other people's job performance is outside of meetings to do things, they're also going to want to minimize those meetings. And therefore, there's always this like tug of war between those two concepts. It's like that uh, guy from Office Space. I'm a people person, damn it. You know, I carry this information from here to there. That's what I do. But I mean, like both, both of you uh, work remotely. Both mm -hmm. of you hold a lot of meetings. Uh, and Rob, you, you kind of hit on some of this earlier. Like, are, are there steps that you take to mitigate like the meeting strain that you encounter, be it shorter meetings or like, I'm not going to take that meeting. I just make that an email or how can, how can people help themselves from this sort of situation, especially if they suffer from like a bloated team? The agendas have really been helpful mm. and I need to get better at this myself, but here are the five things that we want to cover in this meeting. Let us know if there's anything else. We might have to have something broken off of this to, uh, we'll table it for now, put it in the parking lot, circle back to it later. Knowing what the meeting is about yeah. and what is going to be talked about. And then also just really being, I'm about to contradict myself. I was going to say be deliberate about the optional button, but that can also be a curse in itself where if I add these 20 people as optionals, like, well, now this is on my calendar. Do I really need to be there? But I guess having everybody as required, 
but having them really think about, do you need to be in this meeting? And if you don't, just drop me a line real quick and say, this doesn't really pertain to anything I'm working directly on. Can I have this time back and work on X? And you're like, sure, absolutely. And that's yeah. one of the best gifts that you can give is, you know, it's an hour long meeting and you get through the whole agenda and there's nothing else to talk about. Hey, I just gave you 19 minutes back. Remember that down the road. <laughs> well, I work at a startup, so we have the opposite of a bloated team problem. <laughs> you know, like a lot of people dual hatting on a lot of things, but I don't know. My thing about meetings is because I have them all the freaking time is mm -hmm. not saying the same thing over and over again. Like if I feel not like rehashed. I'm repeating myself, I'm I'm going to get bored. I'm going to zone out. I'm not going to like engage with the meeting anymore. And so I know you've said this before, Scott, on the podcast, but like if you don't have a purpose or a reason to be in that meeting, leave, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, go do something else. Or if I feel like I'm saying something for the 25th time the exact same way I'm like this could probably have been an email this probably <laughs> could have been a video even of recording of saying it because there's no need for me to go say it 25 times to one person each I, I think there's also the element of like if you hold a meeting it's to come to a decision at some point uh, of some sort so like when you leave that meeting you should accomplish something like we made a decision we're going to do something else etc and uh just for like any sort of like uh anyone else there out there, I will do a bit of social learning. When I was just a young psych, fresh out of uh, uh, grad school, or master's level anyway, like I, I walked into a meeting and I sat down and like my boss at the time was like, yo, you got like a pen and paper or what? Like what, we're not just here like holding hands or just talking. We're here to accomplish something. So you need to have like ready to take notes and walk away ready to do something. So everyone should leave with something to do. Otherwise, go kill no a tree, to be get, a, get a pen and paper, do it. Go kill a tree, make a paper airplane. If that's all you got to do. <laughs> Speaking of killing trees, uh, y'all want to talk about uh, the citation game? Let's do it. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay. You know, Let's I love raging that. against the academic publishing machines. Let's do it. <laughs> this is a cautionary tale. The gaming of citations and authorship in academic journals, a warning from uh, uh, the medical journals. So uh, authors are game, gaming citations in medical journals, uh, often with no meaningful contribution, uh, are often named in these, uh, you know, as authors. And often those who do the most are not listed at all. Uh, author slots are openly bought and sold, which is freaking wild. And yeah. medical journals are uh, critical of the peer review model. And other fields should take note because this is definitely, could definitely happen if uh you know we're not careful some of the figures they were throwing out is like what are we talking money wise you know is this a couple hundred it's like no it's low five figures and yeah. it's like wow it just it kind of goes up for auction who wants it talking about the retractions happening as well and you know how do we get around this but i was not aware that this was taking place as much as it is especially in medical journals because yeah the social site stuff or just social sciences in general maybe you could kind of see that happening like hey you want to you know build up the cv hop on this with us but with medical stuff i figured that they would be held to that higher standard and if you are the second author on this paper you should really be able to speak to it and that's not the case yeah i i just think it's worth repeating this these two lines in this it says author slots 
are openly bought and sold. The problem is magnified by the academic publishing industry and by academic institutions. So they're colluding together. Please to pretend that peer review is safeguarding scholarship. It's like a ruse. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. I'll pay you, you pay me. We'll all game our career together. And the only person who suffers is science, you mm -hmm. know, and especially to your point about the medical profession. But again, the authors may kind of allude to this may be permeating other scientific disciplines at the same time. Like, can we even trust this stuff? Like, this, I, I know, I think Marcus Corday, when he was on the podcast, he talked about some of these publishing mills that are out there where they have like 500 citations and they have publishing groups and they all cite each other, even though the articles, uh, the authors yeah. don't know anything about the article and they all get tenure together. It's like, great, we're creating a system of incentives to reward uh, essentially phonies and they're going to outcompete the ones who are trying to do science the proper way. I, I don't know. This is very concerning to me. It, it is very concerning. There's also the element of like, eh, perhaps the science behind it is good. Who knows? Uh, but if it's bad, then the authors, and sometimes there's like 30 authors listed on these medical uh, journals or these medical articles, uh, they're not responsible because they have nothing to do with it. And what do y'all think? Because what sort of immediately came to mind is there's these sites where you can pre-register the research and who's mm. going to be in it and what you expect to find, is that going to be something that could mitigate this or will they just buy in earlier? We, we've talked I about mean, this I mean, that's the, the whole open science yeah. movement that Chris Castile came on the podcast and talked about, at least in our profession. But it seems like it's not gaining that much momentum. Like in, I know, I feel like we're trying to do our part by amplifying the message and saying like, hey, get behind this open science movement. Because it's not open science. It's just actual science. Mm -hmm. Because this other stuff that's happening, I don't know what to call it. You could call it fake. You could call it, it won't reproduce. I don't know what, like what the right word is. But like, let's commit to real science. I mean, there's the incentives don't line up for the open science movement. Like, A, it takes time to register. And like, there's all sorts of like funding involved, et cetera. Probably the best uh example i've seen of like trying to determine authorship from at least like a site perspective is like the apa scorecard which just gives you a score of like who came with the idea who did the methods who did the background research all these sort of things and at least you could have some sort of like credible or at least objective way to assign first through whatever authors and at least people are contributing in some sort of way it'd be great to attach that to a journal at the very end as an appendix that every journal needs to uh, adhere to something like that. Yeah. It's something to keep in mind going forward and just how do we keep this in check and make sure that these people actually know what they're talking about and what has been credited to them. The non-reproducible aspect of a lot of the research out there and the retraction and it's, it's really accelerating. Like, could you pot pass a pop quiz on your own right. research paper? <laughs> Yeah, well, that would be something. Well, uh, relatedly, like, are you guys writing anything? And how much are you charging for an authorship? <laughs> yeah. How, how much if for a third author? you have to ask yeah. how much it costs, Scott, you can't afford it. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It. Uh, I'm not currently writing anything, just a lot of stuff for myself, but I, I got to keep it, keep it real. And maybe we should do, I don't think that it's as bad as something like psyop but you know pop quiz open comp time 
hey man you were number Uh, three author on this paper you have two minutes to sum it up go there there would be some attendees there i'm guessing even that's dangerous because like by the time you actually present something at psyop it's like two years old three years old and she's like jesus i don't remember what i did last month forget like forever ago yeah and they'd be selling rotten fruit outside like no no i've just been really busy (laughs) oh goodness I i think we've uh we've exhausted the point on this Oh, I say, Rob, thanks for passing along the citation network map. I will say, yeah. like, I am I am working on this uh, from the last PSYOP. And what, what I found, just for anyone that wants to try this, cleaning the data is horrific. <laughs> Trying that was going to be my question. Citation. Yeah. Yeah, because you do a lot of ONA stuff. And with something like that, is it is it just awful or is it manageable? Well, the problem I found with the citations, just like scraping the citations from PSYOP, is that, uh, say, it'll be like Jones G and uh, Smith T. Yeah. Smith T may also be in another citation as like T.J. So it's the same person, but they don't align. Um, Speaking of which, if you'll indulge me, what should I be teaching my students to be the best people analysts? What? needs to be like the core that you would want to see if you were hiring it's a great question it's a great question i would just be teaching would them to normally be taught a better so like, professor. Hey. <laughs> ah. i'm kidding i'm kidding you're great Rob. no you need, you need to know your uh glm and you need to understand how like some sort of like eeq sort of stuff you need to understand how to talk to people and relate to them and uh, understand their needs it's n- nothing super fan that is and chat uh, gbt gotta teach them that yeah. too, apparently i haven't incorporated data storytelling as much as i would like to yet but i i'm trying to find ways to mix that in because if you do the best research ever and even if it's super interesting if you can't convey that message to the key stakeholders it's not going to resonate it's going to live on your laptop forever i need to incorporate that in there somehow so that they can get more comfortable taking like a glm but then mm-hmm. plucking out the best aspects of it so that the VP says, yeah, I get it, as opposed to losing them with facts and figures and maybe graphs that they don't understand. I would actually, I'll just give a plug here uh, to one of our previous guests, uh, Craig Starbuck. He's mm-hmm. got a book coming out soon called The Fundamentals of People Analytics Using R. And it is, it is fantastic. And it covers basically all the basics that you should be aware of if you're an IO psychologist that wants to get into people analytics. And the other thing is like uh, my company actually just released something called the learning hub. So this is very top of mind for me Mm -hmm. we've been working on this for months. And essentially what we did is we just broke down people analytics into like all the core areas of what you might learn and then found people who were expert in those areas and got, got them to get on film and talk about it. And so I would say like, that's, that's the best thing you can do is just find all the different areas and at least learn a little bit about each one. And then probably specialize in two or three so that you can differentiate yourself from other people. I'm constantly amazed by how much or how prominent the issues that come up in your first month of like research methods are applicable to pretty much anything you do on the job. So you're talking about have a control group, randomize samples, uh, you know, basic hypothesis testing, like all these sort of things that are often not followed through, but 
are just massive from an experimental standpoint. Very cool. You, you'll never know how many T-tests you'll have to run in your career. I agree. Oh, yeah. And then uh, one more thing before I forget. Are y'all following anybody in particular to stay current in the people analytics space? I follow Cole. <laughs> Very <laughs> cool. <laughs> have y'all come across Matt Dancho's stuff at all? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's good he's in the doing... data science space, I would say. Yeah, I like his visuals and I like how he really focuses on the ROI. So I've tried to incorporate a lot of that into my work as well. And I think he poo-poos on Python a lot, which I don't mind. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to have like a variety of different areas to play in because like a lot of people will cover the same topics just like from a different mm -hmm. angle. And often they've, they've tackled the same problems that you're, ish, uh, you're, you're dealing with. Perhaps even better that you could deal with this. So like economists have like really good perspectives. Uh, I follow data viz people. I follow even like architecture, this sort of thing. But just yeah. get a variety of perspectives. That's really good. I have a really weird life now. Used to be, I would just like follow people and like learn from them through like LinkedIn or Twitter or whatever in the past. Now, like when I find somebody that's doing something really cool, I invite them on this podcast or another podcast yeah. or I host a live session with them or I invite them to an event. And so like, I just get to know a lot of these people. It's weird, surreal, but also humbling at the same time. Did y'all have a totally different PSYOP experience than you've had before? I hadn't uh -huh. been since 2018 anyway. So it was different just because I hadn't been in a long time. Because I'm guessing a lot of people came up to you just talking about it. And it's like, y'all are amazing. And it's like, who was that? <laughs> we, we're big in uh, Switzerland. I, I won't say her name, but she stopped me at PSYOP and essentially said that to her kids, shout out to you out there. You know who you are. Her kids uh, love to listen to us in the car on the way to school to learn English. And because we talk about math in a fun way. And very so, cool. That just made made my day. That floored me when Scott told me that. Yeah. I was like, they're learning English from us. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll add in some bleeps eventually. I mean, it, to, to really answer your question, it was it was very different. It's very cool to have strangers say nice things to you. Like that's it's cool. I don't I don't know how else to describe it. I would, my my problem is, is there's like a disparity disparity of knowledge where they know us, but we don't really know them. And so I, I just try to get to know them. I just don't want to be strangers. I'd rather at least make it to acquaintance by the end of the interaction, you know? Well, Rob, you, you've been an amazing guest today. And um, I've been looking forward to having you on here and getting to, I actually did learn some things about what you were saying about NLP and just your perspectives on, on data science more generally. So I, I'm excited to have had this conversation today. Um, any, any final words from you, Scott, before we give it to Rob to take us home? Oh, Rob, I always love talking to you. Uh, great conversation. Uh, how can folks uh, reach out and get in contact with you? Find me on LinkedIn. If you want to talk about networking or people analytics in general, happy to have that conversation. If you're struggling on where to start with networking, I'd love to do that as well. And uh, if you're looking to make a career change, I've been talking with a couple people on that. So I'd love to touch on that as well. But Thank you again for having me on today. This has been amazing. I try to spread the word as far as the messages that y'all are sending to the people analytics crowd. I've learned a ton listening to the podcast and I think it's just a great way to stay topical, but also go ahead and listen to these podcasts and then reach out to the guest and say, hey, so-and-so, I thought you had a really interesting spot on Directionally Correct. I would like to learn more. And that's just a real easy way to grease those wheels and build your network. Absolutely. Let's grease some wheels. Let's get some 
early 90s references. Let's oh, have yeah. Rob Stilson <laughs> back on the podcast. You know, let's do all the good stuff. So you've been listening to Direction Correct, a People Analytics mm-hmm. podcast with Colin Scott and Rob Stilson. Thanks for joining us, Rob. Thanks for having me. Have a, a great rest of your day. As always, all opinions are owned and do not reflect those of any other organization. You've been listening to Directionally Correct, a People Analytics podcast with Colin Scott. Thank you.